Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, and welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. We are extremely excited today because we have Dr. Patrick Hugh, and we met recently at the Moffitt Cancer Center, where he is the president and CEO. Dr. Hugh's career has been really incredible. His current role is really exciting and one we'll definitely dig more into and really trying to leverage the community and create a real biotech community within the Tampa area. And so we'll definitely talk a little bit about that. It's also one of the things that ARC is working on as well. And we have a couple of initiatives that maybe we'll share throughout the podcast. But important to note also that Moffitt Cancer Center is one of the nation's leading cancer hospitals. It's also the only National Cancer Institute designated comprehensive cancer center based in Florida. Dr. Hugh before that was at, as many of you probably have heard of and know, it fluctuates, but usually the number one cancer center, which is the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and he was there for about 17 years. Dr. Hugh is internationally recognized. He's a tumor immunologist, which we'll get more into and give some definitions there. And he really led some of the pioneering research and clinical efforts to really better understand the interactions between tumors and the immune system and helped launch really the field of gene-modified T-cells. So we're really excited to talk more about that. Tons of research that Dr. Hugh has done on many things related to cell therapy and others like the first chimeric antigen receptor directed against cancer. And a lot of Dr. Hugh's work focuses on vaccines, adoptive T-cell therapies, and immune resistance. So we're very excited to have you on, as you can probably tell. And I'm just excited to dig in. Well, thanks so much, Allie, for having me on today. Yeah, no, we're excited. First, I should say, is there anything that I missed that you wanted to highlight about your background or anything like that? I think you covered it all. I was at the National Cancer Institute where I worked with Steve Rosenberg, then MD Anderson, and now really excited to be in the Tampa Bay region to be heading up Moffitt Cancer Center. Awesome. One of my favorite books is The Transformed Cell. So <laughs> so a, a good plug for Steve Rosenberg, but impressive career. So let's kind of get into the meat of it. So immunotherapies, as we know, for anyone listening that maybe has heard the term before, we've talked about things previously like CAR-Ts or like TILs. They've gotten some pretty significant traction, and there's also been some sort of setbacks for the field, I think, in recent years. But we recently did a podcast for anyone who's interested and wants to know sort of a little bit more from some of the clinical perspectives and something we've talked a lot about was with Dr. Wasim Kasim. He had incredible success. He treats pediatric patients with really difficult to treat cancers like T-cell lymphoblastic leukemia and others. So I think to set up this podcast, maybe let's start sort of at a very basic level. So what is immunotherapy and sort of how it differs from traditional cancer 
treatments and maybe sort of some of the benefits when we think about it compared to sort of the traditional chemotherapy? That's a great question. Chemotherapies kill cancer cells directly. Immunotherapies stimulate the body's immune system to then fight the cancer. And one of the advantages of this is that the immune system can go on and continue to fight that cancer. One of the most important cells that we focus on is the T cell, which can do what I call the kiss of death with a cancer cell, can touch the cancer cell, release enzymes that poke holes in the cancer cell and cause death to the cancer cell. Then that immune cell goes on to another cancer cell and can just continue to kill large amounts of cancer. Now, those immune cells can live in the body for a very long time, in fact, decades. And that's why with immunotherapy, as opposed to many other cancer therapies, you can get long-term durable responses. And that's what patients want. They want to be around five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, see their kids grow up, walk their daughters down the aisle. And that is what immunotherapies can do in some patients. Now, we, there are some patients where immunotherapies don't work, and we're still working very hard to get this to work for more people. That's a really, really helpful overview, I think. So thanks for that. And I think for me and probably for a lot of other listeners, you mentioned you were at the NCI. To me, that was sort of the birth of immunotherapy. I mentioned the book, The Transformed Cell. That was one of the ways I learned about it and sort of see it as the birth there. So would love to know, you were sort of at the precipice when all of this was happening. And so we now know sort of the benefits, the drawbacks, the whole story has already unfolded, or I guess you can say the sort of interlude to the story. I think there's going to be a lot more that we'll hear, but you were there really for the birth of this whole movement. And what you say is so important because it's not that this targets your cancer cells specifically. And as we know, if you don't do that, you're essentially wiping out your immune system and sort of starting this rebirth. And so you're already sick with cancer and then your immune system takes a huge hit. And so I think immunotherapy has so much promise. And so being at the precipice of when this all started is pretty incredible. And we'd love to just hear about maybe some of your aha moments and really how you single-handedly shaped the field and the landscape for immunotherapy or what we know of today as immunotherapy. Well, it was a really fun time. I worked with Steve for 14 years, starting in the early 90s, and it was a really fun time to study the body's immune system against cancer. At that time, it was a fairly novel concept, and most of the cancer treatment world did not believe that the immune system was important in treating cancer. It was a funny thing. We would go to conferences. We would always be on the last day. We Our posters would always be in the smallest quarters and the furthest corners of the room. But there was a group of people. I would say a couple hundred around the country and around the world that really believed in this approach. And so we got to be quite a tight community. We saw some things that really made us believe that this could work. For example, when we started growing immune cells from the cancer, reasoning that the cancer had immune cells that were trying to kill the cancer, but obviously not doing a good enough job because the cancers were growing, we learned to take those immune cells out of the body, out of the cancer, grow them to billions, and then give them back to the patient in a process we call tumor-infiltrating lymphocyte therapy. And in our first few patients, when we saw large amounts of cancer shrink and go away, then we knew we were onto something that the immune system was very special and could shrink large amounts of cancer. And it was very exciting for us to see those first responses in patients to novel T-cell-based therapies. 
That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really good precursor for when we talk about the advancements in immunotherapy. So that was when you were at the sort of back of the pack. No one was listening. No one cared. You were kind of, you were accepted at the conferences, but you were like the stepchild, which, you know, you were completely at the back of the conference. That's not the case anymore. I've been to plenty of conferences in the last couple of years where immunotherapy is just so prominently showcased as it should be. So maybe now we can take a moment just to talk about some of the exciting advancements that are going on, even within your own lab and sort of your own clinical work. Great. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of ways that we can stimulate the body's immune system. One is taking the breaks off of the immune cells that are already in the body. We call that immune checkpoint blockade. And the most common drug is anti-PD-1. There are a lot of different brands of that, but it, it's taking the breaks off the immune cells that are in the body. And with that, we can get long-term durable responses in some patients with what we call immunogenic tumors or tumors that are already trying to stimulate the immune system, such as melanoma, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, and some lung cancers. The other big area is T-cell therapy, where we take immune cells either from the tumor, like we talked about tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, or we take them from the blood and put genes in them to allow them to recognize the cancer. And we're seeing great responses there as well. With uh, TIL therapy, we're seeing that in melanoma. And I think probably this year sometime, we'll have the first FDA-approved agents for melanoma with TIL therapy. And then with the blood and taking the CAR T receptors into putting those into blood cells, we're able to really attack blood cancers such as leukemias, lymphomas, and myeloma. And with that, that was also something that we helped to innovate back in the National Cancer Institute in the early 90s called CAR-T. We take immune cells, T cells from the blood, put a receptor gene in them that allows those T cells to recognize cancers, and then we give that back to patients. And so that, so far, has been most effective in the blood cancers, but we're working very hard in the lab to try to get those to work against solid cancers, breast cancer, colon cancer, and other cancers as well. And is that one specifically of the TIL program, is that a partnership with IOVANCE or is that a separate entity with Moffitt? That's one of the programs. IOVANCE is one of the companies. Probably, you know, we never know how these things go. may have the first FDA-approved TIL product, and we did work a lot with IOVANCE. We're also working a lot with Turnstone Biologics right now to try to get the next generation TIL product, where we're sequencing the tumors and trying to get much more specific T cells out of the tumor to improve response rates yet further. Are you guys also working on gene-edited TILs? Yes. In my lab, we're using a lot of CRISPR. It's incredible. The CRISPR technology is a lot of fun. CRISPR is a way to edit genes within a cell. All of our cells have the same number of genes. We have uh, about 20,000 genes. And with CRISPR, you can take out a gene, you can overexpress a gene, you can change a gene. And so what we've done so far is to take out genes. And we've used libraries to figure out which genes we can take out of a T cell 
and have the T-cell work like a super soldier. And one of those aspects, we've taken out a metabolism gene, and now the T-cell acts much more like a cancer and just explosively proliferates upon contact with the cancer. And so we're really excited by these approaches. And I think with T-cell therapy, we're just getting started because there's so many different kinds of ways you can use technologies like CRISPR to modify T-cells for T-cell therapy. Yeah. And I think we've been highlighting some of the incredible things that have happened within the field from going from things that people were maybe not as excited about when you started here with the NCI to now this is a whole field and it's impacted by so many other fields. So I always say when we talk about gene editing, I think a lot of people assume that that's sort of in a silo and immunotherapy is in a silo, but it's really great to see. And we talk about this a lot in the context of ARC, the convergences between and among these technologies. So CRISPR is great for gene editing. It can also be done within an immunotherapy context. And then we may see even better results for patients, which is ultimately always the goal. So I think the work you're doing in this area is just incredible. Thanks. It's really all of these fields converge. So I think as we learn to treat cancer better, these technologies are also used, for example, now you can potentially cure sickle cell anemia using the same kinds of technologies. Right. And that could be the first gene edited product to come to market. So there's a lot of great catalysts with the regulatory pathway for this year in terms of what's been it's been submitted. So we'll find out some interesting catalysts for that. But I think that leads us to an interesting question, which is we're working on all this amazing stuff. We need to get it approved by the FDA in order to have patients take it in a commercial setting. So I think there's a question of what we do in terms of the regulatory framework, right? It does need to change in some ways because there are new treatments and new modalities that are coming to the FDA that they've never seen anything like it before. So we want to get these cell therapies over the line. We want to get them accepted. We want to bring them into commercialization. I know we talked a little bit about this, but you were working with Iovance on their till manufacturing. The company has submitted their BLA or their biologics licensing application to the FDA. It takes a long time. There are lengthy processes. And maybe this is a big question that We'll find out what happens and how we need to change ourselves in order to better get these things accepted and keep the safety as the utmost important for patients. But it's been a challenging process for the company. They're just new, complicated medicines. They bring new hopes for treating challenging cancers, but they do also pose these interesting regulatory problems. So you've started from the beginning in this process. And so I'd be curious to hear from you what your views are on some of these challenges and how you think the cell therapies will evolve in the future from sort of this regulatory pathway perspective. Yeah, it's a great question. And first, I want to preface it by saying, you know, I know a lot of the people personally that work at the Food and Drug Administration. These people are service-oriented people. They want to see great drugs go to people. And I think a lot of people blame them for inefficiencies. But I can tell you, it's not an easy process especially when you're the first product of a kind. And I think that's what the challenges have been so far with TIL therapy. If you'll think about the CAR-Ts that have been approved, they were against a very specific target. The first CAR-T was against a target called CD19. And so we knew exactly what those lymphocytes were going to recognize. A TIL cell coming from the tumor and growing that up, that can recognize 
thousands, there's probably thousands of different kinds of T cells in that till product. So it makes it much more challenging to regulate and to understand. You're not just not going to know what all the specificities are that T cell recognizes. So we need to find different ways to ascertain and make sure that tilt product is solid. And so I think that's what some of the challenges are because this is the first product of its kind. But I think once we get through this, the subsequent products hopefully will be much easier to regulate. But we do have to continue as a field to streamline regulatory issues and to make sure in that time frame between the laboratory idea to the clinical trial, to the FDA approval. Because it's when you get to that FDA approval, that's when you can explosively cure more people. I remember with the anti-PD-1s, now nivolumab, pembrolizumab, those are the first two. We could only treat and cure very few patients when we had trials that had very limited numbers. But as soon as that got FDA approved, we were able to treat just thousands of people and cure a lot more people. So that's why we have to, as a society, continue to shrink that time between the lab idea, the clinical trial, and the FDA approval for drugs that can really save lives. Definitely. And while we're sort of on this complex topic, we were talking about all the benefits, and there certainly are, but I think it's important to highlight some of the challenges. So one challenge, obviously, is regulatory approval. And you mentioned like accelerating the timeline. So the timeline for Context Now is around $1 to $2 billion, and probably it takes from ideation to commercialization something like 10 years. And that's obviously a huge challenge. And at ARC, we think those things are definitely improving based on the convergence between artificial intelligence, next generation sequencing. And we think CRISPR is helping both from preclinical screen perspective, but we also think it could command premium pricing because it's potentially curative. Some of these cell therapies may also command some premium pricing. So I'd be curious to know, I mean, one of the things that would help sort of the pricing debate, but also maybe even accelerate these approvals is these cost declines and, and how do we lower the cost of these medicines so that hopefully we lower some of the premium pricing and we're able to get the money back to the investors, but also encourage and incentivize pharmaceutical companies to continue working on these potentially curative therapies. So at ARC, we love following cost declines. So we typically talk about rights law. I mean, rights law, for anyone who doesn't know, is a forecasting tool, and it focuses on cost declines and follows the rule that for every cumulative doubling of units produced, costs will fall by a constant percentage. So obviously, no math needed here, no specific calculations, but how quickly do you think costs for cell therapy or other important drugs could decline so that these therapies could be more democratized? But again, while pharma and investors can still be incentivized to produce them. It's a great question. We absolutely need to make these more scalable. And I really think that we can do this rather rapidly. There's really two ways, I think. One is to really get engineers involved, bioengineers. And we're starting an engineering department within Moffitt Cancer Center. We have a wonderful chair, Greg Sawyer, who's going to be initial leader of that. And one of their goals is to scale cell therapy. There's a lot of manual processes that could just be done robotically. And so I think that is going to really help us scale. The other way is 
why do we need to make 100 billion till cells? It's possible if we CRISPR and make them much more effective super soldiers, we could treat with a few million. And a few million would be a lot easier than making a few billion. And so I think um, those are the two ways. We can engineer with take the manual processes, make them much more automatic. I think one day we'll have just a box that will put the cells in at one end of the box, at the other end of the box, we'll get the cells back. So engineering that process and then innovating even more effective cells so that we can give fewer cells and fewer cells that have been in culture for smaller amounts of time. So I think those are the ways that we're going to cut the cost, I think, rather rapidly for cell therapies so that once these get approved, that they can be distributed to all the people who need them. Yeah, I think those are all really, really good points. I was reading an article, it's a gene therapy, Zolgensma, but I was reading an article about a government in, in Brazil and about a woman who sued because she couldn't afford the medication, but her son desperately needed it. And she actually won. And they did a type of value-based care model. I think this was in the Financial Times. And the idea is that as long as you're benefiting from the medication, people should get it. Pharma should be incentivized, investors should be incentivized, and patients should have access to it. So it's going to be a really interesting model to see how we can employ and work with payers and get some type of value-based framework where everyone's values and incentives are aligned. So I'm, I'm really excited to see sort of how this evolves. But as you mentioned, the quicker we can get the cost to decline, I think the easier it will be to implement some of these pricing processes. So really excited to see how that shakes up. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Allie, even with what we have today and all the therapies we have today, if you just plug someone's zip code in, they're going to have far variable outcomes, just their zip code. Part of this is genetics, part of it is societal, part of it's environmental, but there's also a part of that is access to the care and be able to be with physicians that know about all of the cutting edge possibilities that are out there. Exactly. And I know we talked about this briefly, but I love the idea of creating some type of resource guide because I actually think there are so many resources for patients that people just don't know about. One such resource is clinicaltrials.gov, which is a government-run resource, and it has all the clinical trials that are available at all of the centers, including obviously your own at Moffitt Cancer Center and others. And so there are a lot of these resources to help patients. And so to get the word out there and to get access when access seems difficult is definitely something that everyone should try helping with. Yep. So sticking on the challenge side, I don't want to be overly negative, but of course, there's so much promise with a lot of these therapies. And we know about that and we've highlighted some of them, but I want to stick to sort of like, how do we make it even better? So another challenge in immunotherapy is just understanding why some patients respond and others don't. And so maybe it'd be helpful to hear a little bit about how we're making headway on this some of the modalities that may help are biomarkers or something that I worked on in the past was using artificial intelligence to try and find patients that were most likely to respond because if you did, 
your costs would go down because screening a ton of patients can be expensive and opening a ton of centers for your clinical trial. If they don't have the right patients that will respond and recruit quickly is also expensive. But also having patients who respond means that you can get that data to the FDA even sooner and hopefully get to commercialization a little bit sooner as well. So just curious on how you guys are thinking about which patients respond, which patients don't, and how do we get these medicines to the patients that will actually respond? It's a really great question. We have to continue to get better at this. You're talking about getting the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And the question is, how do we do that? These biomarkers can be quite complicated. I treat advanced melanoma, a disease that starts on the skin, goes throughout the body. We used to have nothing but a couple of chemotherapies that really didn't work very well. And so that's what everybody got. Now we have so many great drugs, targeted agents, immune agents. Sometimes I'm in the clinic, I'm a little confused as to which ones to use first, which ones to use second, which ones to use third, and in what populations, because we still need to do a lot better with the biomarkers. We have some hints. Uh, so for example, if they have specific mutations, if there's a BRAF mutation, for example, in my melanoma patients, I know that uh, targeted agents, pills that cut off the circuitry that allow cancer cells to proliferate, we can use those pills. So some of it is looking at the mutations in the cancer. Some of it is looking at the immune cell infiltrates in the tumor. But none of those are perfect yet. And there's a lot of overlap between patients that respond and don't respond. There's one thing to say there's a statistical difference in the responders and non-responders, and you can write a nice paper with that. But for me in the clinic, you have to have huge separation between the responders and non-responders in your biomarkers in order for me to make a clinical decision. For example, if there's a hint that this group will not respond as well as another group, but yet some of the patients in that group still respond really well, I'm still going to try for that patient because they may be one of the ones that respond really well. We need a huge separation of those two groups for me to have a clinically relevant biomarker. And so we really lack those right now. What we need to do, though, is put all of our data sets together. There's so many ways to analyze the patients. One is using what's called germline DNA, and that's the DNA that you inherit from your mother and your father. So everybody probably has a different ability to respond to different therapies based on their germline DNA. The other is the tumor DNA, the sequences of the DNA in the cancer with a lot of mutations in some cancers and other genetic abnormalities. Then there's the immune components of how that looks. There's a lot of the environmental and behavioral. Is a patient a smoker, for example, or are they obese? And then there's new techniques, most exciting of which is spatial analysis, where we can now do sequencing, not just of the whole cancer, but we can sequence and figure out are the immune cells next to the cancer cells? Are they next to blood vessels? Are macrophages next to the T cells? And we can define these spatial neighborhoods. And I think this is a lot of data, but if we can put all of that data together, my hope is we can really figure out who responds, who doesn't respond to different therapies. And then in the clinic, I'll know precisely, let's give this drug, this combination of drug to this patient. We're getting there. And that's a lot of data. So we're going to have to use 
AI, artificial intelligence, and other ways to put it all together because it's just too much data. I used to be able to put all my data on a handwritten spreadsheet, Allie, but now it's there's so much data that we're really going to need machine learning to go through that and help us distinguish clinically relevant biomarkers that will allow us to determine which drug to give to the patient at the right time. So as you mentioned, one of the challenges, not only with melanoma, not only with immunotherapy, but I think plaguing society is we have so much data and data is like gold. Data is so valuable. But I think one of our challenges now is, okay, what do we actually do with that data? And how do we clean the data? And how do we analyze this data? So even the idea that we only had a spreadsheet or that you only had a spreadsheet of your patient's data previously is so interesting because you were almost working blind before, whereas now you're almost oversaturated and there's so much noise within the data that it would be great to get it to a place where we're definitely getting actionable insights from a lot of the data that we see now, but it would be great to even get further insights. And on my tour of Moffitt that you generously invited me to do, um, one thing that struck me is how data-driven you guys are. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that for a second. So you have obviously extensive departments. And one of the things that really I thought was interesting was you guys have a specific math oncology department, which essentially takes whatever data you can have, and you try to predict a patient's potential trajectory, which I thought was pretty fascinating. And some of the data coming out of it looked really great. And I actually want to circle back with the team and maybe something we can focus on in a later podcast, but just amazing how we can actually utilize that data in a really productive way. I know you also have NAML, AI, LLM department. If there's anything you kind of want to add here, I just think the way that you guys are differentiating yourselves and, and really focusing on the data and separating it from the noise and getting actionable patient insights. And I think one of the math oncology department examples that we heard was specifically about like, is this patient's best drug going to be the one that we're choosing for that patient and how will they respond to it? So I think the more we can do for that, the better for patient outcomes. So would love to hear just a little bit about how you guys utilize math and data aggregation and, and LLMs. And it's pretty impressive how you guys incorporate all of this into sort of your clinical and bench research. Oh, thank you. It's a great point. I like the word that you use. There's a lot of noise in the data. I think everyone says, oh, just use AI on your data. Well, there's a lot of noise in the current data sets out there. We really need to cleanly know who are the responders, who are the non-responders, and what's their molecular situation. And so we have to put it all together and have clean data. So that's really where we start with our data sets and make sure that we can have as clean data as possible. Once you have that, then you can apply AI, math oncology, and other things. The math oncology group is a group of mathematicians that are helping to use math to solve cancer treatment problems. One of them, their approaches is to use evolutionary biology. So just as the dinosaurs went extinct, we're trying to make the cancers in the body extinct. And so we track how the cancers shrink, and there are formulas that tell us that when the cancer has maximally shrunk, then we should maybe lay off of the drug and let the sensitive cells outgrow the therapy-resistant cells. And when we do that, we can then, when the, if the tumor starts to grow, then we can add the therapy again 
And we can just do that and continue doing that until the cancers are extinct. And that allows us, using mathematical formulas, to use less drug, have less toxicity, and have more effectiveness. Just based on that principle that when you take the drug away, oftentimes the cells that are sensitive to the drug outgrow the resistant cells. So it decreases resistance. We're doing studies in prostate cancer, for example, with that. But that's having mathematicians work with our cancer biologists and clinicians. We're also using AI to analyze the x-rays. And there's a lot of information we have in x-rays and CTs that we're not using right now. We usually just measure the size of the cancer, but there's a lot of other information in that, and that's called radiomics. And we're using our machine learning techniques to understand that so we can predict how a patient's going to do so we can design their radiation and modify their radiation while they're getting it. They have a six-week course of radiation. We help to use the AI and the radiomics in the first three weeks to model out how we dose the next three weeks. And so those are ways that we're trying to use AI, machine learning, and math oncology to treat patients. That's really helpful. And I think it will help with sort of a lot of the find the right patient at the right time at the right place who is most likely to respond. One of the other challenges that I think is worth mentioning here too is that I think immunotherapy has had a bit of a challenging year. And I think that's from the persistence perspective. So an example, I know we're talking a lot about T cells, but there are other immune cells that can be used, for example, like NK cells. And so I think some issues that we've seen are, I think a lot of people got excited. Could this be a one dose thing? Could we just dose you know, a patient and then they're cured and they don't have to worry about, we find the word cured sometimes hard to say, but could they be in remission? And then we they can go about their lives and hopefully not have their health plaguing them. But I think the challenge of persistence has been one that we've heard a lot about this year. I think it's hurt the field in some ways, but there's also innovation solves problems, as Kathy always likes to say. And so I think there will be new innovative approaches that will come out of this to solve this challenge as well. But just curious, I don't know if you're working as much with NK cells, but within the realm of persistency of the therapy, sort of how are you thinking about that and maybe tackling some of those challenges? It's a good question. With targeted therapies and chemotherapies, as soon as those therapies are out of the body, they're not working anymore. The advantage of immunotherapy is uh, these activated immune cells, T cells and other cells, can live in the body for decades. And once you activate them, you can get long-term durable responses. That's if the T cells persist. So we've done most of our work with T cells, and we know they can persist for decades. That's why some vaccines you only need to get when you're young and you never have to get them again. It's because the lymphocytes live for a very long time and have what's called memory. Now, there are other kinds of immune cells as well, and there are also different kinds of cancers. I think for your blood cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, some of those cancers can be killed pretty readily, and the immune cells may not need to be around for a very long time. Uh, some of the lymphomas are like that, I think. But with solid cancers, cancers that kill 90% of cancer patients, the breast cancers, the colon cancers, liver cancer, lung cancers, those cancers, I think we're going to need persistence of our immune cells. For that, you're going to need long-lived immune cells, T cells that live for a very long time. Now. There is another kind of cell type that you mentioned, natural killer cells. They're a different kind of immune cell. 
really interesting immune cell. And there's some evidence in mouse models that they can be helpful to kill cancer. And I think that is a new field. We still are waiting for the definitive data that they're going to be helpful in cancer patients in the long run, but there's a lot of companies working on natural killer cells. I focused most of my career on T cells because I think we know those cells can eliminate cancer and can help in some situations have very long-term durable responses, essentially cures. That makes total sense. Yeah. I think the idea and the promise of NK cells was really exciting when we said, okay, well, maybe there'll be less toxicity. Maybe there'll be less what we call T-cell exhaustion. But I think the durability is a is a pretty significant issue. And I think we've seen that, that T-cells certainly have that element. So that makes a lot of sense from a focus perspective. So I think we've kind of gone through a lot of the challenges, but I think now would be great if you have any remarkable success stories that you've seen with immunotherapy. We know there are a lot of them or in your clinical work or your day-to-day, if you've seen sort of any really inspiring stories. We've highlighted two previously. As I mentioned, we did a podcast with Dr. Wasim Kasim in England, who has treated several pediatric cases of difficult-to-treat cancers. And obviously, the base edited CAR T-cells for Alyssa, the 12-year-old girl who's now in remission, was a pretty incredible story. We also featured Tom Whitehead on the podcast previously, who's the father of Emily Whitehead, who was one of the first children to ever get CAR T. Uh, so very brave family. So we'd just love to hear if you can share any stories that have sort of inspired you throughout your career. Absolutely. And that is really why we kept on going. Even during the dark ages, we call it, when no one believed us, we had patients who were essentially cured with long-term durable responses. I'll tell you about one of them. One was a kid who came, he was in high school. He woke up one morning, had a bleed in his brain from melanoma that had gone there couldn't see out of one side because of that bleed. And it was in the visual area of the brain. So we cut that out. And then he had disease throughout. We gave him one immunotherapy, it didn't work. So then we cut out a tumor, grew up the till cells to large numbers, gave him billions of till cells. And then his lung mats, everything went away. And it's been 10 years now and over 10 years, I think. And then He came to see me in clinic a couple months ago with his baby, and it was just a feeling that he had gone through high school, gone through college, got a great job, got married, now has a baby. So, And that's why we do what we're doing. And he was a football player in high school. He actually wrote a book. It's on Amazon called Changing the Game Plan because after he knocked out his football career, but he um, talked about all of his experiences getting till sales. Wow. I actually, I read a lot about this and I've never heard of that. So appreciate the book recommendation. I'm going to read it. Great. And we have other stories that are wonderful. Another that I have a young father that was a father of four boys and we took his till cells and goosed them up to make them super soldiers by putting in a gene to essentially make them resistant to the nasty tumor microenvironment gave those to him and that got rid of his cancer and he's been doing well for many years now and we've become great friends and we got to throw out the first pitch at one of the tampa bay ray games together but it's really great to see that just a few of these cases and you just feel very fulfilled and the reason is is immunotherapy can give these long-term durable responses essentially cures and so i've become quite close to some of my patients over the years 
Yeah, that's awesome. And being an oncologist, it's incredible to have sort of these lifelong relationships with people because the alternative is terrible. So that's pretty incredible. I got chills. So I'm excited to read the book. I jotted it down. And maybe to focus sort of on our on our mission and our ethos. And we focus on disruptive innovation, which is clearly what you're doing and changing lives. So one of the things that we talked a little bit about is how do we reduce time to market for some of these new therapies? And, you know, just wanted to ask if there were any sort of final thoughts on that part of it, because better sequencing, better AI, better predictions for viable drugs. From our perspective, it's something we're sort of ingrained in our ethos and we think about a lot. We've published on it a lot. We think there could be like a 25% time to market reduction with some of these convergences and maybe even a 25% failure rate, so less drugs that go into the clinic that ultimately may not work. So we'd just love to hear from you if you guys, I know at Moffitt, you're working on tons of sort of mathematical innovation and working in new sort of modalities into your protocols. But if you have any sort of final thoughts on how that can be improved, would love to hear of them. Yeah, so this is really important. It's everything, actually, because every day we can shave off in an FDA approval is lives that can be saved throughout the world. And so there is urgency to this. And how can we do this? Of course, we talked about AI, putting all the data together, trying to predict better who to get what. Absolutely, all of those things. The other thing we can do is novel trial designs. For example, with CRISPR, we can take out 20,000 genes. Well, we can't do those one at a time and see how well those T cells work. We're going to need to really have novel clinical trial designs where we put in immune cells that have 100 genes knocked out, each immune cell with a different gene knocked out, right? And then we can let the patient's body tell us which ones are most effective by collecting the immune cells at the cancer site and just seeing who's doing the hard work. We can then fish out and figure out out of these hundreds, instead of doing 100 trials, one trial and figure out which genes we need to knock out with CRISPR. And so I think those kinds of novel trial designs can greatly accelerate us, figure out which gene to take out, and then really decrease the time from lab study to FDA approval. And what's cool about that also is that CRISPR can then also sometimes be the therapy. So you can do the knockout study and then check what the therapeutic which one you would choose as a therapy. So I think it's can accelerate even from that perspective, which is super interesting. Absolutely. It lets us define what the treatment really should be. Right. Huge time saver. So would love to know from a fun personal side, one cool thing that I learned about you is you're in a band and you have a biotech conference. So I know you perform at the biotech conference. I don't know about your touring schedule other than that, but it might be more extensive. I think it's called the remissions. Is that right? Yep. So would love to hear just, you have a stressful job, obviously. There are some great successes and some difficult times. So would just love to hear about how you decompress. That's one fun one I heard of, but would love to hear more if you're able to share. Thanks, Ellie. Yeah. I've always been a musician and music's been a very important part of my life. Always kid. As an Asian son of immigrants, I had a choice. I could either play violin or piano. So I chose piano. 
And as I grew older, in every job I've had, I've had a band that we formed. So at the NIH, we had protocol violation because our drummer was the head of IRB. When I went to MD Anderson, we had the checkmates. And now at Moffitt Cancer Center, we have the remissions. And a remission is what every patient wants, their cancer to go away. And so I just put out a missive. I said, you know, when I started band, and so I started getting emails. Hey, I sing, I play bass. So everyone's a team member at Moffat Cancer Center. Our drummer is in security. Our lead singer is a mammographer. Our bass player's a code nurse. We just have a, a fun time. We're practicing tonight, in fact, and it's just really one of the most fun things that I do here. It just uh, totally relieves stress. I also have a national band called the Checkpoints, and we'll be playing um, at Buddy Guys in Chicago at our big ASCO conference this June. Oh, well, I will be at ASCO, so I, I'm excited to see it. I'll come. It's June 4th. We're playing at Buddy Guys, and the last three years in a row, Buddy has come up on stage with us for a song, so it's been a ton of fun. I will definitely put that on the calendar, and it's it's kind of cool to see your trajectory of names, right? You went from sort of like regulatory to therapy to remission. So it sounds like you're at the best possible place. So that's pretty cool. And maybe I'd be curious to know, obviously, you're at Moffitt now, which is in Tampa, Florida. Would love to hear, I think one of the things that you've been doing and working really hard at that has been gaining a lot of traction is getting really great people to the region and sort of building up biotech within that ecosystem. So I'd love to hear about how you're working on that, maybe even how we work on that together. But I think building a really great biotech ecosystem within the region is really important and something I think you're really excelling at. Thank you. You know, Florida is a very entrepreneurial state. I think the whole country realizes that people are moving into Florida, including you guys, which we're so excited about. So it is really ready to take off to be the next hub of biotech. Biotech, there's so many, we're at a very unique time in history where the science is so good, we will be able to continue to cut these cancer deaths down. And a lot of that's going to go through biotech. We're going to take ideas and start to put them into patients. And so we do have a 750-acre campus about 35 minutes north of our main campus. It's going to be called Spiros. It's in Pasco County. We're really excited about that. We're going to have a proton center there, a clinic, a big 300, 1,000 square foot research building. And we are welcoming biotech companies in as well as big pharma in to work in partnership to build this community within the state of Florida. And we think it's going to be very successful and impactful to the region. And hopefully we'll come up with a lot of new treatments to help patients in the future working together. That's fantastic. And obviously, you know about the ARC Innovation Center that's being built in St. Petersburg. So I'm sure we'll have a lot of opportunities for collaboration. So really exciting. We'll have to follow up on that. But you know that you're busy. So I just maybe one final question. Do you have any advice to give to young scientists, young clinicians, and or even to patients and their families who are going through either considering or undergoing immunotherapy currently? Would love to hear sort of support to sort of younger scientists slash clinicians, and then maybe even some thoughts for patients and their families undergoing these difficult treatments. Okay, thank you. First, to a potential scientists and clinicians out there. If you're in middle school or high school, science is fun, it's inspirational, and it's often way better than they teach it in school. So I feel like I just play every day. 
we're coming in, we're doing clinical work, we're doing scientific work. It's a ton of fun and you can save a lot of lives. And so it's one of the most fulfilling careers ever. So go into STEM, become a scientist or healthcare worker. There are many different aspects that you can do in, in the field from the person who takes the x-rays to the person who reads the x-rays, the person who handles the test tubes in the lab. It's really very exciting area. So go after things that you really love doing, but science and healthcare is fun. To patients, make sure to advocate for yourself. Cancer is extremely complex. The treatments are changing every month. We're getting more FDA approvals than ever. So make sure you're going to a place where the doctors have seen thousands of cases like yours, such as a large cancer center like Moffa Cancer Center. We have hyper-specialization and I only see advanced melanoma. We have other doctors that only see breast cancer. We have other doctors that only see lung cancer. So you can really stay up to date on the cutting edge and also get access to clinical trials, which often are the most exciting agents because they're available to patients 10 years before they're FDA approved. So often the best approach for patient is an agent that's only available in a clinical trial. So I really urge patients to advocate for yourself. Don't just go where your doctor referred you to, but just do some research, make sure you're going to a place that has uh, specialized cancer care, such as Moffitt Cancer Center. Excellent. And with that, I just want to thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and your insights that you've provided today. I know they'll be really helpful for a lot of people listening. So we appreciate you. We think of you as an ally in the community, and we're just excited to create further collaborations together. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Allie, and can't wait to work more with you and your Innovation Center. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.